it's not that hard an idea to get. It's cash for the internet. I mean, what's the problem? They, they have this whole thing, oh, I need to understand the code. It's deliberate ignorance. Dominic Frisbee is trying to spread the word about cryptocurrency. He's been interested in the subject for longer than most people and has written a book about it. But he's got another life, or other lives in fact, including acting and stand-up comedy. I'm Charles Miller, and I started by asking Dominic, in his capacity as a financial journalist, which is another thing he does, about the difficulties of trying to explain cryptocurrency to people who are new to it. I almost think there's an unwillingness to understand it. And, you know, the crypto people involved on the inside of cryptocurrencies have gone to great lengths to try and explain how cryptocurrency works to you know, we'll use the word no-coiners. And, you know, some people, they've have got it. But I just think there is a deliberate recalcitrance on the part of certain people who are just determined not to understand it, come what may. You know, it's not that hard an idea to get. get. It's cash for the internet. I mean, what's so difficult about that to understand? And it's, it's non-government money. I mean, what's the problem? They, they have this whole thing, oh, I need to understand the code, or I need to understand this or understand that, and so you explain it to them, and then they profess to look baffled, and then they don't get involved in it. Well, it's, it's deliberate ignorance. And the whole thing is, if you want to buy and sell stuff, if you want to accept Bitcoin for your services, or you want to sell stuff in Bitcoin or buy st- stuff in Bitcoin, you don't need to understand it. What people go to enormous lengths to understand how a debt-based fiat monetary system works. Nobody understands how money gets created. Nobody understands quantitative easing. Nobody understands that 97% of money is debt and only 3% is cash. Nobody understands seniorage. Nobody understands interest rates, or some people do. You know, the idea that you need to understand something to use it, you don't need to understand how hypertext transfer protocol works in order to use the World Wide Web. Who understands hypertext transfer protocol? Most people don't understand how the combustion engine works. They all drive cars, or a lot of time they don't even drive a car, they just sit in the car and have somebody else to drive it. So this whole thing of, this whole argument of, I don't understand it, therefore, it's willful ignorance. It reminds me a little bit of how reasonably well-educated people will often almost boast that they don't understand maths at all, and yet they would never tell you that they couldn't read or don't understand English. You're absolutely right. I'd not thought of that, but that's a really good analogy. It's cool not to be any good at maths. And if you're reasonably competent at maths, you're a geek. You know, if you go places like China, Korea, maths is a, is a basic, important mental skill to have. Whereas here, you know, where we're, we're too cool for maths. We'll come back to, to Bitcoin and stuff in a minute. But can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Because sure. you've got this very strange mixture of two professions or areas of expertise. Just tell me. Well, there's I, I, more than two, actually. But I, I started out my life as a voiceover artist. It was the first job I had was doing voiceovers for a Channel 4 tennis programme. And, um, you know, I still, you know, just yesterday morning, I was narrating a load of documentaries about the um, Imperial Palace in China <laughs> for National Geographic. So, you know, I still do that. Do you just use, do your own voice or do you do other voices? I do lots of different voices. What, but what other can you do? Name your voice and I can do it. But the one thing I've noticed is as I've got older, my repertoire's got smaller. 
and I think when you're a kid and particularly when you're at drama school you spend your whole time practicing doing different voices and you do banter with your friends in different voices and you just build up a kind of repertoire so were you at drama school mm -hmm. yeah but I went to drama school because I wanted to be a writer because I'd looked at all the best writers in history and, you know, a large portion of them had started out as actors. And they weren't really writing Shakespeare being a case in point, the, the biggest case in point. And so I went to drama school because I wanted to become a writer. Not all people do that, but that was my And so did you come that. out of drama school and become a writer? Yeah, I'm a writer now. But, I mean, straight away you started writing. Oh, no, my first job was doing voiceovers. Oh. <laughs> I got sidetracked. <laughs> Why and voiceovers rather than acting? It, it, it's just it's just what came to me right. you know at, at drama school I was always the best at radio and and I made a, a voice tape and at the time it was still cassettes and I sent it around all the agencies and one of them needed a you know a young bloke and they signed me up and within a week I had my first job and it was a year year's contract so um, I just fell into it and it's it's a pretty good live voiceover it's it's pretty well paid you get treated well um, and you know it's reasonably good fun it's not as glamorous as being a Hollywood star I think given the choice between being a Hollywood star and being a voiceover artist most people would choose being a Hollywood star but given the choice between being an unemployed actor and being a voiceover artist a lot of people would go for the for the voiceover artist Is it true that uh, this is what you always hear that successful voiceover artists just hang out in bars in Soho and wait for a call and ten minutes later they're there <laughs> doing the, the voiceover That used to be the case and um, it wasn't actually even a bar. It was a, the waiting room of, of a sound studio called Magmasters on St Anne's Court, just off um, uh, off uh, Wardour Street. And they used to sit in there. And it was, this was in the days before mobile phones. And so they'd they'd sit, and and their agents knew that if they could get hold of them at short notice, just by calling the way, just by calling Magmasters, and you know they get the phone and they go, is so and so there? Is so and so there? So they used to sit there. But that's how it used to work. The pages changed that. And then, obviously, mobile phones, there was no need. You, but, yeah, I mean... Were you part of that world? I was right at the very end of it. Like, I think I got within a year of doing my first voiceover. It was 1993 was my first voiceover. And I think by... Probably by 94, 95, I had a pager. But it, in, it wasn't even... It was like a doctor's pager. So it didn't... Um, there were no messages. Just you just you got to ring somebody. Yeah, you just got the phone number yeah, of yeah. the person you had to go and <laughs> ring. And um, but I used to have a job. I was an announcer for the BBC World Service at the time, and I had my pager with me. And the the BBC World Service was on the Aldwych, and I had a bike, bicycle, and so I knew I could be in any sound studio in central London within ten minutes. But yeah, the other thing that that changed it was um, uh, ISDN was invented and it meant that you could do voiceovers from a greater distance and loads of voiceovers of the old school when ISDN came out they all retired and they said right sit that's it I'm going to my house in the country I've got my voice at my shed that's going to be my sound studio I've got under the stairs or in the back garden wherever it is and a lot of them never worked again or only ever did like really badly paid local radio. The connection between that part of the acting world and your interest in money is, as you referred to, that voiceovers have a rep reputation for being really amongst the best paid per yeah. hour, presumably, of any kind of acting work you can get. Sure. And I'm afraid, sadly, it's not what it was. And a lot of the media industry isn't what it was. But in the 90s, you know, the best paid voiceovers earned extraordinary amounts of money. But it also presumably left you some free time. So let's, yeah. let's go back to your biography. You, yeah. you came out of drama school, you got into the world of voiceover, and then 
in yeah. your for in, in the spare time left over something else came along the whole financial thing it was a complete accident as well but um this would have been mid noughties 2005 around about then um i had you know from doing voiceovers i had a bit of money <laughs> and i wanted to invest it and i met a couple of fund managers and they all wanted their three percent and i just didn't like the smell of them and um I started reading stuff on the internet and I started reading about gold and I became convinced that gold was a good investment. And then, of course, gold is an extremely uh, political uh, investment because of the fact that it used to be money once upon a time. And so I started reading about the relationship between money and politics and um, independent money and, and fiat money and all these things. And I just thought, this is amazing. It was a total, you know, the curtain being pulled back in the Wizard of Oz kind of moment. And um, I wanted to talk, find a way of meeting all these interesting people who were talking about gold and so on. So I started a podcast, not unlike what you're doing now. And I met loads of people. And one of them offered me a column in her magazine, Money Week. This was a lady called Merrin Somerset Webb. And um, suddenly I was a fine... And she was... I said, I don't really know anything about this, Mary. And she said, no, we need people like you because our thing is we, we're putting it in a language that people understand. And most finance isn't put in a language that people understand. And so that's, that's kind of how I stumbled into being a financial writer. So did you have to come up with something new every week? Though? Yeah. Uh, but it, but was it that was, difficult? No, really, it wasn't at all. I was mainly writing about gold at the time. <laughs> And it was just such a huge subject. There was always a new angle. But commodities generally, oil, there was a big bull market. I was a genius because I was going buy gold and all people from the FT were going, oh, I don't think you should buy gold. And they were all wrong and I was right and I was the clever one. You know, so more fool them. You uh, were then, lucky. I was, well, I was in a, I invested in a bull market. Everyone's right. a genius in a bull market. <laughs> and, um, you know, same way all the guys who were saying buy Bitcoin up until last year, you know they're all held as rock stars, but it's because they were right about a bull market. But the the dis- when you're when you're a comedian and you do something on stage that the audience doesn't understand, then they don't laugh, and the effect of them not laughing is that you die, and that instills the discipline of clarity onto the comedian. That discipline doesn't exist in the world of finance. If anything, it's the other way around. It actually pays to obfuscate. It pays not to be too black and white about any particular issue. Same with politics. Then you can go back like Theresa May and go, well, if I was clear, I said this. Well, you weren't clear. Uh, if anything, you were anything but clear. But the, so I think one of the reasons a lot of my columns were popular was that you know, I brought the discipline of clarity to finance and put it in a language that people understood. And how does that need for clarity translate into the world of crypto? Because in a way, it seems like even more complicated well, than it is. business in general. It is. And I've, I've had a go at you know, no coiners for their willful ignorance. And I stand by that. But explaining Bitcoin in my book, I remember f- at the time finding it extraordinarily difficult. And, and, and you know, I read all the other books and I thought, no, you've, you haven't explained that. I think, well. you, I think I can't remember this chapter one or chapter two. But yes, chapter at, one. At the end of it, you do say, right, well done. You've got to the end of the difficult part of the book. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> but it was really, you know, explaining the problem of double spending and, and uh, the Byzantine generals problem, all those things. It was hard to explain. But now, at the beginning of this conversation, you were saying, well, really, you don't need to know that stuff. You don't. You really do not need to know it. Is that because we're in a different place now? Or No, you don't need to understand it to use it. 
Right. I understand it. I'm better at understanding it than I am using it. I find using it difficult. You know, with your wallets and keys and all that. You do not... I, I, I stand by that. You do not need to understand how a technology works in order to use that technology. It's true. Looking back on sort of how the internet got from a sort of geeky minority of uh, nerdy people who understood yeah. it to something that everybody uses and doesn't understand, I think that what it was, I think initially actually, was email. Everybody found email so useful. Yeah. But... And what that was dismissed. Email was, nobody realised, and it was all focused on the, and remember the dot-com boom, everything like dot-com, dot-com, and it was actually email was what everyone used first. You're but, absolutely right. But what is going to be the email of the crypto world then? Um, uh, buying weed online. <laughs> <laughs> That's slightly depressing as, as the way forward, I think. Well, that would depend on your views on our drugs laws. Is there not a nice, wholesome you know, 99% of the population use that we could think of. I think, I think your estimate that 99% of the population doesn't smoke weed is a little <laughs> bit misguided. <laughs> but yeah, I agree, that's not the sort of corporate line. What I always tell people is get a wallet, go to your app store, get a friend to do the same, um, then you've got an address, and, you know, buy a tenner's worth you know, there are various means by which you can buy a tenner's worth depending on where, where you are in the world. Local bitcoins is the one I always advise because then you often get a free lesson as well when the guy comes to sell you his bitcoins. And um, then just practice sending the other your friend who's also downloaded a wallet, just practice sending each other small amounts of money. But if I said, well, what's the point? Well, the purpose of cash for the internet is to buy stuff. But I don't have any trouble buying stuff at the moment. Well, exactly. So then you don't you don't probably don't need crypto. My experience was I went to something called Bitcoin Supermarket okay. or something, and I ordered something off Amazon, uh, a light bulb actually. Bitcoin Supermarket is in Florida. Okay. And this was six o'clock in the evening. The next morning, this light bulb was delivered to my house. Wonderful. And it was two pence cheaper than it would have been if I'd bought it in pounds from Amazon. So rather than push the two pence, how much is a light bulb? 50p? It, no, I, I was like, it was an expensive light bulb. It was like five pounds. You know? uh, okay, so it was only like a, a half percent cheaper or something. Or quarter, yeah, the point is that it yeah. wasn't more expensive. That was what surprised me, because all this, all this stuff had to happen. Yeah. The whole issue here that's coming, and this is the next big issue, is privacy. And I just don't think ordinary people realise how much of their privacy they have already given away. Right, so that, that worry about privacy yeah. is going to be an your attraction. Your spending habits say more about you than your words do. And if more, if more people come to worry about that, yeah. the sort of relative anonymity of the crypto world will become attractive, you mean? I think so. Like, the, the beauty of cash payments is that they're untraceable. I'm pretty sure that we the next the narrative that's going to drive the next bull market in technology is privacy. And suddenly people are going to realize what they've given away there's going to be a value to privacy, you know, because at the moment the tech stocks are valued on not how much money they make, but on how much market share they have. And Part of that market share is owning the data. Data is like the next real estate. Data is the real estate of the digital world, if you like. But people are gradually going to realise my data 
is valuable. In addition to worrying about privacy, one of the sort of visions for an alternative kind of crypto universe is that instead of paying for itself by ads, each person will have micropayments either to or from. Uh, so that I might get paid a little bit for writing a blog that is popular. Yeah. Is that a realistic proposition? I hope so. Because, you know, often I'll read articles, say, in, like, you know, The Guardian or Daily Telegraph or something, and often the comments are better than the article. In fact, often the comments are some of the most brilliant pieces of writing you'll ever read. But don't you think... Those people get no value from that. And if, you know, if they get like... Or, you know, you stick a video of your cat on YouTube... And, you know, YouTube extracts all the value from that brilliant video from your brilliant, unique, wonderful cat. So I think... But would the user say, OK, fine, I'll pay 0.00 something to I don't, see That's something I, don't quite, I haven't quite got that yet. They'll have this to. idea that you, you know, every time you get a like, you extract some kind of monetary value. But you, the person who's consuming the content... Uh, will have to have a wallet on there which you're happy to donate a, you know an nth of a penny every time you like something you'll have to have that wallet you know at some point you'll have to go I'm happy to pay this money and a lot of people won't be happy to pay that money and so I don't quite know how that's going to work yeah I think that could be a problem it will be because we're used to getting everything for free and we like the idea of getting things yeah. for free it's a bit like that thing where if you can pay a fixed amount for your internet connection or something or you pay by how much you use yeah. people will choose to pay a fixed amount even though it's more because it relieves them of the anxiety yeah. of not knowing and yeah. worrying about it and I think that if YouTube or the equivalent on crypto was to say every time you watch a five minute video we're going to take 0.0 something off your wallet um, that would not be a relaxing experience for people perhaps no I mean, even if it's an nth of a penny and it's such a small amount of money, it's insignificant. The idea that you're willingly paying out all the time just when you're fiddling around on Twitter or whatever it is. So there'll be some geeky guy who just gets that and he'll be able to dismiss all our concerns straight away. Uh, but it's something that I haven't fully understood yet. <laughs> and let's, let, let's just end by going back to your, your life mix of, of oh, work yeah. then. You're a Renaissance man. I'm, well, I'm a Renaissance man, but, but you, you know, it, it's it's... You know, you can be some things to some people and some things to another people. And I think it pays to have, like my USP, if you like, is that I'm many things, but I think it actually pays to have a one USP. Right. Yeah, if that makes sense. It's time so, you settle down. And well, no, I'm not going to settle down because I do what I do and I'm stuck in my rut and I'm 49 years old now and I'm not going to change. But, but you know, I, I think um, in terms of marketability and branding and all that... Um, it often pays to just do one thing. Well, we've been talking to Dominic Frisbee, and you can go to his website. Which hasn't been updated in many, many years. <laughs> DominicFrisbee.com. But he's available for a wide range yeah. of services. No gig too big, no small too hall. Oh, no, hall too small. Sorry, I can't <laughs> get the phrase right. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Dominic. My pleasure. Thank you. Dominic Frisbee. Many thanks to him, although I really should have made him do some of his funny voices. Please join me next Thursday for another CoinGeek conversation. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>